You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Peer Pleasure with Dewey Halpas on Adobe Radio and Jabberjaw Media. My name is Dewey, your host with the most, bringing you more great content week after week. This week, we have Mr. Nathan Carson from Witch Mountain from Nanotear Booking. He is a man about town, man about the world. He is an author, a musician, a booking agent, just a true renaissance man. Uh, Nathan has uh, been a buddy of mine since the early 2000s, back when I worked at a club called Loveland. I actually lived there as well uh, in between touring. It was a free place to live and a place that paid cash uh, so I could tour and have something to make some money while I was at home. We met through the sandwich shop that was uh, downstairs. He'd always come in and get lunch because uh, his ex-wife, or now ex-wife, Northern worked there, and, and uh, she was a buddy of mine. So that's how we met, and we've kept in touch over the years. Anyways, Witch Mountain is an amazing band. They have inspired countless bands in the doom metal scene, and I am stoked to bring you this conversation with Nathan. Uh, He is also an author, which I found out through this conversation. I had no idea he was an author, um, but you'll hear about his books on there, uh, and definitely pick them up on Amazon when you get a chance. Uh, But like I said, super stoked to have Nathan on the show. And let's get some business out of the way uh, before we jump into this. First off, I have missed two weeks of the podcast. Uh, That was due to a surprise trip 
uh, from my buddy Mike Mowry, the owner of Jabberjaw Media, bought me a ticket to Mexico City to go uh, hang with all the people down there at this festival called Hell and Heaven Fest. I know you guys have seen the pictures uh, of myself and some various people and Mike and just having a blast down there. It was literally the week before my passport had expired. It was fucking craziness trying to get a passport in five days to be on a plane to Mexico City for a day and a half trip to see Ozzy Osbourne, Marilyn Manson, Scorpions, Judas Priest, Refused, Mastodon, Tenacious D. I mean, the list goes on, and what an absolute blast. Anyways, it's going to be a whole episode on its own just telling the story of this trip. It was fucking crazy. Anyways, so that's why I missed the last two weeks of the show. It was Mexico City the first week traveling, and then, of course, I got sick from being in Mexico, so I was down for another week. And uh, so, like I say, I apologize to you guys for missing the shows, um, but everything's going to be coming out, and this is one of them that I had to push off uh, two weeks. So my apologies to Nathan and Monica at Speakeasy, uh, but this one's coming out now, which is actually closer to the self-titled album from Witch Mountain that's coming out on May 25th. So it kind of works out in a way, but that's the story, and as you guys have seen on Instagram, you've seen where I've been. Uh, and what I've been doing. Anyway, so let's talk Rockabilia. Rockabilia.com is your one-stop shop for all your licensed band merchandise. Over 500,000 items in the store available to purchase. And like I say, they are all licensed from the artists, from the bands, and you're doing a good thing there. And to get 15% off your order, PC Jabberjaw is the code. Uh, we are on purepleasurepodcast.com we are on instagram twitter facebook everywhere podcasts are available um and you can always use the smart url which is on the instagram and it pulls up automatically every different version uh of program that you can pull the podcast from whether you have an android phone or a computer or any of that stuff it's easy to listen to the show and we appreciate you guys coming back week after week we have had a blast doing this and uh, I want to go ahead and get into this one because it is a good one. And I am stoked to have Mr. Nathan Carson from Witch Mountain. Cool, man. Well, Nate Carson from Witch Mountain and Nanotier Booking, all sorts of different things. You've done so much stuff over the years, it's crazy. But uh, <laughs> I was so glad uh, when Monica had reached out to me because uh, I was like, yeah, Nate and I know each other from way back in the day. And uh, 
I was just stoked to stoked to have you on. And she sent me the new record, which is fantastic. And uh, yeah, so now I'm in the in the loop. Awesome! Thanks so much. Cool, man. Well, uh, so which mountain's been busy? You got the new record coming out. You got uh, tour coming up, uh, I believe, soon, right? Yeah, we're going to be out on the road in July and August. Okay. Uh, we are before that. We're playing Northwest Terror Fest in Seattle, and we have a record release show that's on my actual birthday, uh, June twenty third, at Star Theater with some really amazing bands. Excellent. The Star Theater in Portland. I I was shocked by that venue. I hadn't gone to it for quite a while. I, I mean, since it had started, and and all of a sudden, I went to a show there, and it was just uh, it was just an awesome venue. I mean, it's really cool. It's, it's one of my favorite rooms in town. I mean, it sat vacant for decades, and then uh, the Dante's people got a hold of it, and now it's this beautiful hall with the red curtains, and it, it's one of our favorite places to play. We've done a lot of shows there. Yeah, and the sound's good, and it's just it's comfortable. It's got that little uh, outdoor area you can go to, especially with like a no reentry kind of thing. Like you can pop out there, and there's you know, yeah, it's really cool. And then that Great. tiny green room in the, under the stage is the only yep. downside, I think, if you got multiple bands playing. But, uh, yeah, it's a good spot. But, uh, totally. Cool, man. Well, I haven't seen you in a long, 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 long time. I think uh, you and I kind of met each other. Oh, God, I must have been working for Loveland at the time when the sandwich shop was going because I think uh, you would pop in there every once in a while for food. and yep. And then we started talking a little bit and, and – uh, Mike kind of clued me into who you were and what what you did, and so you've got you're still working with Nanotear, right? That's your that's your booking agency. Yeah, yeah, I started it I think late 2003, and it's really like bigger than ever. It's great. Oh, it's awesome, and you got some I good love bands. Not, I love not having a boss. Yeah, exactly. Being in business for yourself, and then you kind of follow the same thing with Witch Mountain too, where where you guys are pretty much all self uh, sufficient as far as management booking I mean, you're booking the band right yeah that, since i mean i built my booking agency around witch mountain tours that was really how i learned to to book tours was uh was some of our first runs um in the, you know right around 2000 or so and okay. then i booked a couple of tours for yob as a result because they were sort of like our little brother band at that time mm -hmm. and uh that started going so well that i started i pretty much built the agency around witch mountain and yob and um man we're still going both bands it's really awesome <laughs> that's so badass dude i and yeah applause to you for working for yourself for so long and and just having that freedom i mean it's got to feel good every day yeah i mean the the stress is just that i feel so much personal responsibility to do the best that i can for all the artists i mean yeah. it's not it's not the kind of job where i can just say fuck it and walk away you know like i I have to be able to take that 3 a.m. phone call if there's a problem at a gig somewhere. And I just, you know, I personally invest a lot in this because these are, I only work with bands that I really love, you know, like there's, there's been some moneymaker bands that I've passed on because I just didn't resonate with their music. So I only work with bands that I, I really believe in. And so there's always the stress there of like, I have to deliver, you know, the best for these people, but man, it's been going so well for so long that, um, you know, I can't complain. Sure. And having that integrity too, to where that's awesome. You know, a lot of people wouldn't turn down those big moneymaker bands, but the fact that it's got, like you're saying, it's got to be stressful sometimes. We got an international tour and the, you know, everything's nine hours ahead or whatever. 
and you're getting those calls from those bands who are basically your family. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can't leave them stranded. You know, I remember times touring where we would have, we'd show up to a club that was closed or uh, had either moved locations or the, or the show wasn't even on. Like, there's no one there, just completely empty. And we're just sitting there in this town like, okay, what are we going to do now? Call the booking agent. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, yeah, real sorry. I was working on this or whatever. I didn't catch that email coming from the promoter. Show's canceled, blah, blah, blah. I don't know yeah. how many times that happened. That sucks. Luckily, that doesn't really happen with us. I mean, you know, things go wrong, but luckily I've been doing this for so long that my instincts, when there's going to be a problem, usually my spider sense goes off and I can fix it before it really gets to to that level. And um, so <laughs> sure. most, mostly those kinds of gigs are in the past for anybody that I work with. Was that, was were, were those Portugal tours you're talking about? Uh, early Portugal tours yeah. and then some anatomy of a ghost tours where we'd, we'd show up and uh, we'd just be fucked like in El Paso, Texas somewhere. And then we had like a day off after. So it's two days we had to then figure out what we were going to do. And I remember, uh, I remember setting up a show for you guys at the tube. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and well, then also uh, thirty-one knots bill that I put you guys on at Doug Fur a long time ago. So. Okay, and you do you you're right. You used to write uh, album reviews for the Mercury too. Do you still do that? I was at the Mercury for like I don't know six or seven years, and then I switched over to the Willamette Week where I've been ever since. And I also write for the Oregonian some, and uh, I just did my first article for Decibel. And I don't know. I keep I keep pretty busy with the writing, although. I've been focusing a lot more on my fiction lately than on uh, music. Good Lord, man. <laughs> what time do you get up in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> oh, usually about 1030. You get it's up about... at 1030 and still do all this. That's badass. Well, because I stay up till 3 a.m. working on all of okay. it. That makes sense. So yep. writing for Decibel, that's pretty awesome. What, what are you doing for them? Well, the, the only thing I've done so far was uh, they have this column called Justify Your Shitty Taste where people take albums that are sort of the black sheep in a band's catalog and talk about why they love it. And I wrote an article about children of doom by St. Vitus, because that was an album that I had this really profound experience with in 1996, where I stayed up all night and listened to it three or four times. And the next day, you know, got on the fledgling slow internet and looked up doom metal and all of a sudden, it just sort of crystallized. I'm like, oh, it's not just Black Sabbath and Candlemass. There's, <laughs> there's actually a, a whole, you know, tradition built around doom metal. And and I've always been in these super weirdo bands. And Witch Mountain formed about six months after I listened to Saint Vitus' uh, Children of Doom for the first time. Like I met Rob when he was playing in Naomi Stubbs, and we both just had a, you know, a hunger to make really heavy blues oriented doom music but we didn't even really hardly know what it was called at that time nobody really called it doom in the 90s particularly except for a very small scene of people okay uh, so anyway uh i wrote about that album for decibel and and it ran and it was a good experience and so i'll probably pitch them some more stuff excellent excellent man well that takes us back like where where did you grow up in portland I grew up on a goat farm in the woods outside of Corvallis, Oregon. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) So you had the uh, rural kind of lifestyle growing up. Yeah, very much like that kind of Stranger Things type, you know, riding bikes around, running around in the woods and staring goats in the eye. It all happened. (laughs) Is that where you got your work ethic from? Uh, You know, it's funny. My parents 
they're really cool people and they really didn't want us to have to work too hard as kids. So we didn't have serious chores or anything. I think what it came from is that they let us be kids and free range kids. And then, you know, we turned 18 and had to go get, go to school or get jobs. And it just, I don't know. I didn't really like school very much. Like I was a smart kid, but I wasn't into jumping through hoops and I wasn't into doing homework. I just wanted to ace the tests and have smart ass participation in class. (laughs) And uh, so as soon as I was like, Oh, now I'm in a position where someone's paying me to do a job or paying me to come to work. That made perfect sense to me. Whereas school, like, you know, when I tried to go to U of O briefly, I was like, I'm paying to be here and you're telling me like, how to do it like i don't like that okay <laughs> so so yeah i don't know i mean i think the work ethic it, it it came from just uh you know deciding not to be a drone and not to go to school so i kind of had to work harder to find my own path and then also i went through a divorce about 11 years ago that really made me just reevaluate everything i was doing i just thought okay what's what are the things that I put on hold that I've always wanted to do? And it was, I want to take my band to Europe. I want to make more albums. I want to write novels. And I'm, and, uh, I'm doing all those things. So it's great. Okay. I think that's back. I think right before that divorce was back when you and I met back at Loveland, yep. I think. And that was really yep. soon after. And, uh, yeah. Okay. I'm putting it all back together now because I was trying to remember when abouts that was. And I think that was about, about right then. And, and so you've done those things. It seems like, like you've done what you wanted to do and, and made that choice and made that commitment to, you know, doing these things you want to do. And, and that's funny to think about back then you were, I mean, kind of predisposition for what you're doing now, as far as you saw value in certain things and not in others and then wanted to, you know, kind of be your own boss and not be, you know, if I'm going to show money out, I don't want to be told what to do or how to do something unless, you know, you find your own way. Yeah. I mean, I, right up to that point, I had a pretty lucrative career doing computer animation, uh, which was great. It was, you know, semi-creative and it, and it paid well. Um, but I just got tired of sitting in a, in an office cube, making animating visa logos all day and uh (laughs) it it just it felt a little soulless and you know there there was two ways i could go was either move to new york or la and really pursue that and sometimes i think you know if i if i had really because i was really early on that 3d animation path i I went to trade school for that in 93 94 Mm -hmm. so you know if i would have stuck with that and still be doing that 20 some years later, I'm sure I would have been working on Star Wars movies or Marvel movies by now. But again, that's still like pretty corporate and soulless. And, uh, you know, I like I'd rather be booking tours for Corrupted and Yob. Yeah. <laughs> and enjoy what you do all the way through. And then that money yep. is even better, even though it may not be as much. It means more, you know, like it's it's certainly not as much. However, uh, I, I've been in the same rental place in Portland for the last 15 years and my expenses are very reasonable and my lifestyle is really great. So I can't complain at all. And on top of that, I, you know, I preview concerts for the paper. So I get to see like the symphony for free all the time. And I don't know, it's a, it's it's a good life here. Dude, that's awesome. That's that's one thing through this show. I've been able to meet a lot of new people, but also reconnect with a lot of people that I've either lost touch with or I don't see very much just because they're always on the road. Or and uh, 
yeah, getting to getting to see tons of shows and and everything else. It's just awesome. I mean, I I remember back then I saw every show just because they were coming to the club I was working and living at. So yep. was, I couldn't get away from it. I'd get off the road and and get home and put my bags down and some bands practicing downstairs. I'm just like fuck. I can't I can't get away from it. The train's going by honking its horn and it was just you know, crazy crazy time. Awesome. I saw some classic shows in that room, though. It was a cool space. Yeah, it was great. I I remember the most, I think the most life-changing one for me, and it wasn't life-changing because I became a fan, but it was like eye-opening. Because there's that time Mm -hmm. when you you first kind of discover, and I want to get into this with you, too, because... <clears throat> the time where things kind of changed for you, like with St. Vitus, where you where you heard that record and, and uh, everything kind of changed for you. Mm-hmm. Smegma came, and I, you may have even booked that show, I don't know. Smegma came in and uh, played at Loveland, and uh, mm-hmm. Mac Mann from Get Hustle was working there, and uh, uh, we, he was working the bar, and I was working the door or something, I don't remember. But I was just listening to it and it just sounded like garbage. I was just like, what is this? <laughs> like homemade instruments and things like that. And I was still pretty into pretty commercialized music at that point. And I was looking at Mac. I was like, this is awful. Like, I, this has got to end. And he just looks at me like he almost starts laughing. And he he takes these swizzle sticks or whatever, the coffee stirs from the counter. And he's like, just watch this. And he picks them up in his hand and he just drops them on the counter. And he says that was music mm-hmm. and then i was just like something just clicked on in me to where i was just like you know what you're right like yeah maybe it's not verse chorus verse chorus but this is music like just enjoy it and from then on my mind was open to so many other things and i was able to take in other bands that i normally would have been just like what is this and actually appreciate what was going on and and that's a long-winded story but uh yeah i mean i think a a real eye-opener for me was my mom had all these john lennon singles and the b-sides were these really weird yoko ono tracks like some of them were like a minute three seconds long of her like almost reciting a poem over some herky-jerky new wave song and i remember like listening to those and puzzling over them and writing down the lyrics when i was like 10 years old and uh you know at the same time i was listening to weird al and whatever else yes. uh, so you know i i don't know i mean there was no chance to rebel at my house because my my dad had seen the stooges and my mom had seen Jimi hendrix and stuff like that so probably the only thing i ever remember playing at home that they really couldn't parse was diamanda glass i i remember okay. them just shaking their heads like what are you up to now but um but I, yeah i feel really fortunate that i even though i was cloistered in the woods in the middle of nowhere you know i wasn't repressed and there was a college station in corvallis and there was an independent record store so when i was you know in middle school and high school i'd go into happy trails records and they'd be like here this is big black check this out here this is the naked city this is carcass like you you really need to you know have you heard boyva and uh so there was a lot of word of mouth and sharing of really weird and interesting music at that time. And so I'm, I'm really glad, but, but then I turned 18 right when Nevermind came out uh-huh. and I got, and I was outraged at like all my favorite bands, like Metallica and Nirvana and all these bands were signing to major labels and putting out more commercial music. And so like, I can understand that whole process now as an adult, I can look back on that and understand that these are artists that want to have a career and, you know, people that don't want to starve making art. But at the, you know, when I was an 18 year old boy, like 
I was pissed at everyone and everything. The only, the only band that I thought that pulled off that transition at that time was Babes in Toyland because their major label album was still really harsh and really great. Sure, sure. And that's somewhere everyone kind of got on that bandwagon or got sucked into that that whole scene right there where every, it was just like a vacuum where labels were just swooping in and signing everybody at the now, same was, time. They were spending money. And, I mean, I can imagine that if – you know, bands like Sonic Youth that were really scraping by for a long time and doing really important things that, you know, all of a sudden there's David Geffen with a check. You know, that's that's hard to, <laughs> you know, hard to say no, I'm sure. Yeah. Although some, some bands did it. Sure. And then you had, like, the Melvins. Like, I talked to Buzz and Dale, and they both mentioned, like, Kurt kind of got them that that deal. Like, hey, would you guys just want to jump on the major label deal? And uh, yeah, we do this for money. <laughs> but they stayed the same. Like, they're one of the the exception to the rule. I think every time. But uh, it's they... funny. I mean, even even at that time, because I had been a Melvin's fan for a while. I had been seeing them live since I don't know 1990 or something. And when those major label albums came out at the time i felt like they were slick and commercial too and i was not super into those shows or those records now i go back and i really like them and i of course love the melvins and still go see them to this day because they're one of the best bands ever yeah i i think that you know in a lot of ways their career arc is the perfect one to model on because they were able to sign for three records to atlantic get sort of like an expense paid trip around the world and then they were let go with no strings attached but they had a bigger fan base and they've been able to sustain it and play to like 800 to a thousand people everywhere every night ever since and i think that that's that's really beautiful like when i when i think about careers that i sort of idolize the melvins is usually number one sure and they did it their own way the whole way it's crazy like <laughs> i was asking yeah. dale like what was it like you know, doing what you're doing with money. He's like, it's exactly that. It's doing what we're doing, but with money. <laughs> we can yeah. eat a little better, and we could, you know, have a car or whatever else, and and, uh, and then it was over. <laughs> he was the drummer, and the first time I saw Nirvana on the Bleach tour, Dale was drumming on that tour, and, you know, that was really something to see. God. See, I you're a little bit older than me, so I could, when you were coming into the realization of things that were, you know – changing and things like that to where i was just under that point so i mean you got to see nirvana and everything like i was still in alaska at that time uh yeah. when kirk had passed or kurt had passed and uh all those i mean it was like playing catch-up when we moved down here but it was at the too late for a lot of these bands to be able to see them and and uh yeah yeah i mean it was just a geographical thing i mean being in corvallis the wow hall wasn't that far away it was an all-ages club and so i got to see Fugazi on the repeater tour and no means no on the oh wrong tour God. and like all this stuff that was just coming through and it was like like neurosis on the pain of mind and word is law tours these were like relatively local events and uh we went because it was like oh there's there's a punk show happening and it just happened to be that some of these were like really world-class artists sure and we had we had record stores in alaska like mammoth music and stuff where we would, you know, if we drove into Anchorage, we could go to them. And, and uh, the record store down the street from my house in Wasilla literally had, that's where I got uh, Melancholy from the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, the guy's like, yeah, this is a new record just came out and and uh, it's a double record. So it's kind of worth it because it's the same price as the other ones. <laughs> and I was like, okay. But that was like awesome. that and Pantera and uh, then like Marilyn Manson and then all just the, 
super commercial garbage. They didn't have anything like in Anchorage where you could go and just look at for some cool album covers and find some rad punk records. Like, uh, so we had to rely on mail order. And like you said, yeah. the internet was very infantile at that time. And, and so we get these catalogs from different labels and stuff. And, and each person in the band would order a record from there so we could swap them out later because we couldn't afford to all buy the same like deal. So that yep. was, and you had kind of the same thing with that record store. You go and it's kind of the same as mail order. Like, Hey, you know, check this out, check this out, check this out. So, well, plus vinyl was just so cheap then. I mean, it was three or four bucks to get a record and a used record and I, you know, one of the reasons I'm a DJ now is because I bought so many records in the 80s and 90s. Like it was to get every Slayer record for three bucks a pop was easy. And so, and I was coming out of a sort of, you know, comic collector, D and D nerd phase. And so once I got into records, I was like, oh yeah, well I want every Metallica record and every Slayer record and every Voivod record and every Iron Maiden record. And it was cheap to buy those. So sure, but. But, you know, don't get me wrong. The Beatles are my favorite band, and I certainly grew up, you know, Metal Health by Quiet Riot was a big record for me when I was 10 years old, and Def Leppard, Pyromania, and, you know, Purple Rain, and Rebel Yell. I mean, it's not like I just was listening to John Cage from birth or something, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well-rounded, well-rounded fandom there, where... You get a little bit. Of I mean, I like what I I like what I like, and I never went through phases. Like I loved Air Supply when I was a kid, and I continue to go see Air Supply when they come around, and they're a fantastic band. Like that's like melodramatic, triumphant music that I love to see. To me, it's seeing a doom metal band emote and seeing Air Supply emote is not that different because it's just epic fucking music. And I I've just I've never had something that where I was super into it and then later outgrew it. To me, if I like it, I will probably always like it. Like it for life. That's interesting. Yeah. I've done, I'm 70-some I'm in- episodes into this show, and that's the first time anyone has said that, to where they just like yeah. what they like. And, and uh, yeah, that's interesting. So you could be, I mean, you're, you're, that would explain probably why the Beatles are one of your favorite bands is because you heard them so young and you've just been with them for a long time. Yeah, I mean, certainly my parents exposed me to the Beatles and, and watching Yellow Submarine on TV once a year back in the days when if you didn't watch Wizard of Oz at Thanksgiving or Yellow Submarine, wherever they ran it, then you wouldn't see it for another year because there was no VCR when I was a kid. And, you know, films weren't being revived at the theater that often, except for the Disney stuff, which was on like a seven year revolution back then. Yeah. So. So yeah, I mean those those definitely hit me hard. I think Yellow Submarine was my first LP that I owned. Um, but the thing with the Beatles is that they've done such a good job of kind of keeping us interested. Like the there's so many great books that keep coming out and different versions of these recordings and rarities and things. So even though I've been listening to the Beatles basically since I was a child, like a year or two ago, I invested in the monobox set okay. and it's all their original albums the original mixes in mono which which is what the band actually mixed themselves with the engineers like all the stereo Beatles stuff that we grew up with where the vocals are on the left and the drums are on the right uh-huh. that's some that's that was not what the band intended for us that was something stereo was like a gimmick in the late 60s and they were like oh well we'll just have the assistant engineer do a stereo mix of this record while we go out, go out to lunch based on our notes. 
And somehow that's become the definitive version. But the mono mixes are actually the ones that the band and the producers intended for us to hear. And so the fact that they they mastered those with the best mastering equipment possible and put them on all black vinyl, made it German plants and put it in this box set a couple of years ago. And I picked that up. And it's, it's like getting to hear those records for the first time again. It's really awesome. So that's is that the one that's in that Lemmy documentary? He goes and finds an amoeba, and that have you seen that Lemmy documentary? I need to see that, but oh, I wouldn't doubt it. Okay. I mean, he 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 knows what he's listening to. Sure, he goes into amoeba and he's looking for the mono box set, I believe, of the Beatles, and they're like, oh yeah, we don't have it. And then the lady, the one of the owners, goes back and and brings out her copy of it and sells it to him. She's uh, like, oh, awesome. you're Lemmy, and she like, you know, bows down to him or whatever. She's like, you know, I can always get another one, but you're here today. And yep. uh, he was talking about the same thing. Like, this is how the band meant it, meant it to be heard. It's it's true, and you would think it wouldn't make that much of a difference, but when you listen to those original mixes, it's there's there's something that you can feel and hear there that's really special. That's sure. Cool. And they have, uh, man. One of my roommates had some recordings that were uh, from the studio, just where they just left the mics on. So, like, John and Paul just talking to each other and hashing out mm-hmm. ideas. Have you heard that stuff? I mean, some of it. Okay. As, as much as I'm a geek about it and I've got a whole shelf of books about <laughs> the Beatles and tons of records, there's still more info out there. You know, I I do too many things to, to be, you know, exhaustive to the point where I've seen or heard it all. But that's, sure. that's what's exciting. I mean... We're still discovering, you know, proto metal bands from the seventies that, that made like an, an acetate in 1972 that, you know, got stuck in somebody's attic and now it's being reissued. <laughs> it's, just, it's incredible. The stones that are being overturned. And, and then you think about how much more shit has been made since then that will continue to come out. So like, you know, assuming we don't rapidly get to the point where the most important thing is, finding canned food and protecting our property or whatever. Uh, there will be all kinds of fun toys and books and music to enjoy in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Man. Well, so which mountain started in 97, 96, 97? Well, you, you told yeah. me the album that got you there, but, but how did the band come together? Did you form the band? Like, this is what I want to do and find the people, or did, were you already jamming? Well, so I had been playing in bands for years at that point. I think my first punk band was in Corvallis was in 1989. Um, and the, so by 96, I'd been at it for a little while and thinking about getting a little bit more serious and thinking about moving to Portland. And it was right when I moved to Portland in 97 that I saw Iomi Stubbs for the first time. And that's Rob Rong was on guitar. He's a lefty. He was playing a Strat. He had a full stack. He was doing leads. And it was like the most uncool thing in Portland at that time was to be playing loud sludge noise metal music. Um, you know, nobody in Portland liked it if you could play your instrument or if you had pro gear or if you did guitar solos. And I and, and Rob did all these things, and I was like, "That's the guy." And he he claims that I gave him my number like three different times. <laughs> I, I I don't remember that, but I believe it. But what happened was that. Uh, Iomi Stubbs went on this uh, ill-fated West Coast tour, and they basically like broke up on the road. And when Rob got home, he called me, and you know I'd already seen him play and knew what he was capable of. And I was just telling him how much I was interested in Doom, and 
you know, he knew about I Hate God, and he, you know, was obviously a Sabbath fanatic and a Hendrix acolyte and stuff. But we traded a lot of music back and forth, and a lot of our, you know, crossover were bands like Melvin's and Jesus Lizard uh, and Butthole Surfers. So there's always been a little bit of that element to Witch Mountain that sets us apart from some of the more truly traditional doom bands. Yeah. Because, you know, that's what we grew up listening to. Um, but, but yeah, we basically were like, hey, you know, this doom tradition is really interesting, and we like this style. And at that time, it was a teeny tiny scene. There was like one doom band in each state, and that was the circuit. And luckily, the internet was just coming around, and so we never had to book any tours by telephone, thankfully. But, you know, like the... So bands would reach out to us. Once we were sort of, you know, established ourselves at like, hey, we're Witch Mountain, we're in Portland, and we're playing this kind of music, you know, there were no other doom bands in Portland for us to play with. We would play with punk bands and metal bands and hard rock bands and, you know, be the, be the odd man out. But then bands started touring through. So the very first High on Fire show in Portland was with us, and then they'd slept on our floor that night. The very first time Electric Wizard came to town, they played with us, and they slept on my floor that night. And Yob sent us a demo in 2000, and then we got really excited because we're like, oh, there's a band in Eugene that's doing this now, and so let's bring them up to town and have them open for us. And that started happening more and more, and there was kind of a, a little cyclical peak in that scene where you know stoner rock and doom around 2002 2003 sort of you know became more well known and then that bubble burst and then it's uh you know started up again in maybe 2008 2009 and we sort of got to ride that wave a bit and now it just seems like it's strangely ubiquitous like doom people know the term doom and there are you know half a dozen doom bands in every city now it's or more and uh something we never expected like we never started playing this style of music thinking man 15 years from now this is going to be really popular you know it just like it was just something we were passionate about so it's what we started doing and i would never start a doom band in 2018 but i feel like 20 years in i i get a license i'm sort of grandfather clause <laughs> and i can keep doing it yeah absolutely like the and, and matt Matt lives here now from High on Fire, I believe, in in, yep, in Portland. Does. And uh, <laughs> ironically, the episode I did with Buzz, he was there, and uh, I had pulled Buzz away to do the interview, and you hear Matt uh, peeling out in his El Camino on, the, yeah. on Hawthorne Boulevard on the on the episode. I was like, God damn it. What's going on, guys? This is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I want to tell you about our newest sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid distributes your music across all online platforms, they are an amazing company. I've enjoyed working with them the last few weeks, and they're going to be with us for a while, and I really, really appreciate that. I love working with great companies, and DistroKid is one of them. Uh, they have an awesome thing they're doing right now called Splits. Now, if you're working, as most people are, online, doing collaborations with people from all over the country, all over the world, as easy as that is with the internet, uh, you want to get those people paid when you put that music online, and splits can do that. You can add an unlimited amount of collaborators to any track. You can change the splits at any time. You can add or remove collaborators at any time. You can see previous splits, and all your collaborators are going to have to do is sign up for a DistroKid membership, a DistroKid account, so they can get paid. And as always, DistroKid never takes a cut. 
you and your collaborators get 100% of the earnings in total. A couple other awesome things that they do is they set up an official artist YouTube channel. Uh, you can use Spotify Canvas, synced lyrics, promo card to promote your release on social media, a mini video for your socials as well. There's just so many awesome things about using DistroKid. And like I said, I don't advertise things I don't use, haven't signed up for. I have signed up for this. It is a breeze, literally a breeze. And you can get going right away. So definitely check out DistroKid. And I want to give you 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. That is distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for Peer Pleasure Podcast. Once again, that is 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. Distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP. Go check out DistroKid right now. Distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for 30% off. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey guys, this is Dewey from Peer Pleasure and I wanted to tell you about Premium Pleasure our premium subscription service that's available now. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. There's three tiers, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Tier one is $5 a month. It gets you the ad-free experience. Tier two gets you access to the Peer Pleasure Passcast. It gets you access to the videos of the interviews. It gets you merch discounts. Tier three is $20 a month. That gets you all of that. It gets you the past cast, gets you the video footage, discounts on merchandise, and monthly Zoom calls well, with myself and other guests. We're going to have all kinds of stuff in there for you. There's all kinds of stuff in there for you now. There is, uh, I believe, 30 to 40 videos of these interviews. There is uh, multiple episodes of the past cast. The past cast is a podcast that I'd started separately that is me and another podcaster or me and a guest. Uh, discussing a deep dive into their favorite episode of Peer Pleasure. Um, so there's a bunch of those on there. So so-and-so and I would talk about the Chino Moreno episode. So-and-so and I would talk about uh, the Yvette Young episodes. And we would do a deep dive and tell where they came from, how we got the guest, stories of uh, that weren't discussed on the podcast or maybe weren't in there. Um, it's just another glimpse behind the curtain. So that's the big deal with this premium service is giving you a glimpse behind the curtain of how the podcast is made, gives you access to things I'm doing and things that we're doing with the show, um, gives you, you know, ad free stuff. It gives you just all kinds of, of things that we could throw in there to help make it a valuable part of your month. Cause I put everything out there on this show. I put everything I have into this show. Um, so being able to give you guys that little bit of extra is a big deal to me and having your support is a big deal to me because if we don't support our artists and creatives, we're not going to have any left. 
So I appreciate it. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. Go sign up today and get some of this premium pleasure. But so all these things kind of come full circle. You've got these early, uh, early, you know, meetings with these bands. And I've, I don't know if you've seen, and I keep bringing this stuff up, but like, have you seen American Hardcore, that uh, documentary on like the early, like, uh, SST era punk rock where, um, they're talking about, you know, I don't look at a, a United States map and look at Florida or look at whatever. I look at California, I see Black Flag, I look at, you know, uh, uh, poison idea in Oregon. I look at this mm-hmm. and it's like their network and kind of like what you're saying. There's a network of doom bands, just, you know, one or two per state. And you guys just kind of hook up that way and have a place to go. That's it, really it interesting. worked out for us. I mean, like in 2001, we toured to Ohio and back and that's exactly what we did was we played with the band in each state that, you know, they would set up a show for us. We'd stay at their house and, you know, and then move on to the next place. And it was, it was very much a community trade system at that time. And you know, now, now it's very different, but yeah. And I, I, I'm not going to say I missed those days because I kind of happier with where we're at now. Um, sure. You know, the, the tour that I was able to put together for us was it's, it's, it's a lot of shows. Um, we're covering a lot of ground in a month, but Compared to how we're used to touring, I'm I'm really excited about this trip because there's a day off every week, which is unusual for us, uh-huh. and the route, the routing of, and the drives are pretty sensible, and the venues are all cool spots. So you know, I'm really excited about every single show on this trip. Okay, and yeah, having a day off every week would be nice. <laughs> I mean, when you I mean, can plan it that it's, way, it's for me as a drummer, it's less important. For our vocalist, it's something that like she needs to be able to rest her voice one day a week and I totally get that and I'm sure I will enjoy those days off but I'm kind of come from the mindset of like if you're not playing you're paying and those days off you still have to pay for the van rental and everyone still has to eat so you know to, to a de- I mean we've done tours in the past where it was like 28 shows in 31 days and I don't particularly mind that because when I'm on the road like you know it's just a mindset that you're in like you're there to work and it's and the work is 18 hours of the day and the sleep doesn't happen very much. And that's why I get so much sleep the, the other 10 months of the year, save up for tour. Sure. And touring is just a weird, a weird thing in general. Just, and uh, I say that because it's kind of like if you're having the worst day ever, it's fine because tomorrow you're going to be somewhere else. But also if you're having the, the best day ever, it sucks because you're going to be somewhere else the next day. You can't, you can't ever really get your your grounding anywhere. It seemed like to me when I was on the road all the time was I just I would it just kind of existed and I was having a good time, but I'd come back and I felt like I was frozen in ice for six months. It was kind of yeah, weird. I mean, there's certainly a lot of really cool places that I've been that I've only kind of seen the inside of the club and a couple of block radius around it. Like I can say that I've played in Paris twice, but I haven't really gotten to spend any quality time there. But what I do try to do is, you know, if I make really good friends somewhere or I get a really good vibe of a city, then touring through gives you this amazing opportunity to return to it. Like Antwerp, Belgium is not a city I ever thought about, but then I went there with Yob in 2010 and I just really like the people and I really like the city. And so I've gone back to visit and um, it's then, you know, then I know people and I have, you know, places to stay. Like it's, it's really 
from 20 years of touring, there are very few places I could go that somebody wouldn't offer me, you know, their spare bedroom or something. And so for, for traveling outside the band, it's really awesome. You have this massive network. <laughs> yeah. That's... And, and I, you know, even in Portland, you know, when I was promoting a lot of shows, you know, back like for you guys and other bands, there, there's very few bartenders or baristas in this town. I haven't booked a show for their band. So like, it's pretty easy for me to go get a free meal or a free coffee or, you know, offer to drink somewhere, which is, it's not that I, I demand that in any way, but it's, it's just nice to feel like there's a bit of a system where people are kind of looking out for each other and scratching each other's backs. Sure. It takes it back to that. Uh, I wouldn't say primal, but it's, it, Back before there was, you know, all the money and everything else is kind yeah. of a barter system. And, barter, and yeah. You can absolutely survive that way. The whole world can, I think. And it, it's crazy. I was going to ask you because, you know, from how you grew up to now, I mean, you're very connected now. You're very, you have the internet, you know, smartphones, everything else. Do you think it would be possible to go back to that, that way of life where you grew up knowing what you know now? And survive, or do you think it's something that's just way too far past? Like, if we lost, this always fascinates me. If we lost the internet and everything else, and we had to go back to when we were riding bikes and everything else, you know, going to record stores, doing everything the old-fashioned way as it is. Do you think we could go back there? I mean, I think that's a beautiful idea, but I'm afraid that going back there is going to be a lot more like Mad Max than like. Uh, the Goonies. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that. I could see I mean, that. I, I just, I think that, you know, humanity is, I don't know. I, I feel like even five years ago, I had a lot more hope for the future than I do now. I think that the human race is not going to die out, but it is a little bit more like, you know, cockroaches or a virus or something. And, uh, so we'll survive, but how we survive is very much in question. And, you know, I I want to be optimistic because I am genuinely a happy person and I think my life's fantastic and I want the best for everyone, but it's not really what I see going down. And, you know, I think we're at a, a real tipping point and it would be awesome to see things go the right way. But on a, on a worldwide scale, it just seems like the majority of people only care about themselves and aren't looking out for the planet or each other. And I think that it's, it's really hard to battle against that. Sure. I see that. I see that every diamond construction now. And I see that every day where mm -hmm. I'm sitting in the lunchroom and I'm just hearing everyone's comments about guns and everyone's comments about everything else. They're trying to take this. They're trying to take that. It's just, yeah, it's people exhausting. Want short they want short-term solutions and they want to make the most money and they're not worried about what they're throwing in the landfill or, you know, who's having to pick up after them. And, uh, I don't know. I don't want to get negative. But it's sure. just, uh, it just seems like we're a little bit, we're, we're heading down a really dangerous path and not enough people take it seriously. And it's, and I don't know, it, it makes me glad I don't have kids. Sure. Sure. I, yeah, I, I definitely understand that. And, and this kind of segues into, I, I didn't know this about you, what you were just mentioning earlier, is you're a fiction writer. Yeah. So what kind of what kind of stories and, and ideas are you coming up with for this fiction? I mean, I was just like, fantasizing about going back to the old ways. Uh, sure. But as far as your fiction goes, tell me about this. This is interesting. I, I had no idea you were doing this. 
Yeah, well, it's something. I mean, obviously, I've been writing since I was a young kid and and an avid reader. And my mom was a librarian, and my grandmother got me into like cool science fiction stuff at a young age. So I've always been interested in it. But it was always one of those things where I was like, oh yeah, I'll I'll get to that. I'll do that at a certain point. And when I was nineteen and writing a lot of pastiches of H.P. Lovecraft and Clive Barker that were terrible. Uh Um, I read this book on creative writing and uh, by Damon Knight. He's a science fiction author and editor from Eugene, Oregon. And he said in that, he goes, if you're not at least 30, you should go out and get some life experience and then become a writer. Uh And I took, I took that seriously to heart. And that's not to say that there aren't amazing writings done by people in their twenties. Like that's, if if you've got it, you got it. That's great. Mm -hmm. To me, I'm glad that I went out and, and toured and traveled and worked different jobs and had relationships and met thousands of people because uh, I guess it was about four or five years ago now. I turned 40 and I said, you know, I, I really have, I've been doing the nonfiction thing. You know, I've written like thousands of nonfiction music related articles and written for so many magazines. So it's like I kept my chops up and I write a hundred emails a day. Uh, so that's there, but it's really different muscles uh, in your brain to write fiction. And I just knew that I knew how to not be a hobbyist as an artist. Like, you know, my band, even though our, my witch mountain isn't our full-time job, it's pretty serious endeavor Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not weekend warriors. We're not lazy. Like when we, when we work, we really go for it. And so I knew that with fiction, it had to be the same thing. I was like, I have to really put in the time. I need to do my homework I need to be in front of the computer writing. I need to go to conventions. I need to do live readings. And I've been doing all those things for the last couple of years, and it's going so well. In fact, just this morning, uh, my my 12th story in a row sold, and I'm really excited. Like, you know, there aren't a lot of things that happen musically anymore that are, you know, aren't things I can say, well, yeah, it's our fifth album. I've made an album before. I'm excited about this album, but it's not my first album Mm -hmm. but my my first book came out like a year and a half ago and that was a a big milestone for me or to get or when i get on some reading and i'm like the opening reader before somebody i'm a fan of like that's there's there's a new thrill at that but anyway so i've been mostly writing short fiction that's horror science fiction fantasy bizarro kind of weird i have my own kind of weird twist on all these things because i'm not really interested in just being super traditional like uh-huh. there i i like speculative formats i don't want to do realistic literary fiction um but but the book that i put out is called star creek and it takes place in mid valley oregon in the mid in 1986 so you talk about kind of going back to that place where there are no cell phones and yeah like that's that's where i set the book it's it's basically kids getting into trouble in backwoods Oregon in the eighties, because that's a time and place that I know. I just, I just made it way more fucked up than it, than it even was. <laughs> Did you base it off of like, like things that happened to you and just like, tweaked it and, and added some, some stuff to it? Or was it all purely just uh, creativity as far as uh, just coming up with the storyline? I mean, it's certainly a mix there. There are characters in it that are sort of hybrids of people that I knew or me and my friends and, there are definitely a lot of locations that were places that I, I really went to. So a lot of it is inspired by this haunted back road called Star Creek, which was really close to where I grew up. And I used to walk around there when I was a kid and just get creeped out because 
there really were inbred families living without electricity out there. And in, in, this is in like the mid eighties. Yeah. And, uh, and I just thought what an evocative setting for a horror novel. And so, yeah, I mean, there's, there are things that are based on true experiences, but, but it's definitely not a diary. It's, it's a, it's a work of fiction for sure. Okay. And this is the book you just sold or this was your, this was your first one. This is my first novella. Um, everything else I've done has been short stories that are in anthologies or magazines. Okay. Star Creek was a standalone book um, that came out at the end of 2016. And um, I've also done a two-issue graphic novel since then, and those issues are both out. It's called The Willows, and it's an adaptation of a 1907 weird horror fiction story by Algernon Blackwood called The Willows, and that was H.P. Lovecraft's favorite story. And okay. so it's in the public domain. It's, it's an old classic, and it had never been turned into a comic format before. And I've got a buddy who's a really amazing illustrator named Sam Ford, he had done a couple of Witch Mountain album covers, and he and I had talked about doing a comic project for a long time. And there's a local shop called Floating World downtown that is one of the best comic shops in the country, and they have their own small press. And the owner, Jason, just approached me, and he said, Hey, I really like your book. Would you want to do an adaptation of The Willows as a comic? And I said, Hell yeah. And those, those issues are out, and now we're working on um, padding it out to make a hardcover with a little bit of bonus material, so that'll be out next year. Interesting. So we could, so you could pick these books up. Uh, you could pick up the graphic novels at that at that shop downtown, and then where do you find the novel? Is that everywhere? I mean, Powell's has it. Amazon has it. Oh, Those dude, two, I'm going to pick that easiest. up. That sounds Great. really interesting. I had no Thanks idea. I had no idea yeah. until you mentioned that at the very beginning that you were working on fiction stuff. Hell yeah! Okay, I'm gonna pick that up. I'll order it on Amazon today. I've, uh, that's awesome. I I am super stoked for that. I really appreciate that's it. I, I think you're I think you're in the target demographic. I think you'll dig it. I mean, it's funny because I wrote it like nine months before Stranger Things came out. Uh huh. <laughs> but it, there are a lot of interesting similarities between it. But at the same time, I don't know that kids riding BMX bikes around the woods and eating Eggo waffles is really like a genre. It's just like a time and a place, it's something yeah, that happens. It's you nostalgic. Know? But it is funny that, you know, the elements in common between that show and my book. But, you know, obviously neither influenced the other because we're working, you know, at the same time unaware of each other. Sure. And my book is definitely more R-rated than their TV show. So. <laughs> well, the good thing and is then, I haven't watched Stranger Things yet. I have not seen oh, it. Yeah, right. I held off. I'm going to read this first because cool. uh, that's interesting. I'm... I I did like the first season. I haven't seen the second one yet, but I enjoyed it. I mean, it's definitely aimed at me. But uh, what a lot of reviewers have noted when they were reviewing Star Trek is that Stranger Things was made by younger people who sort of, you know, imagine what the 80s was like by watching E.T. and the Goonies and stuff. And whereas, like, my book obviously is written by someone who lived in that time and place. And so yeah, I, I, I appreciate it when reviewers call that out. It's nice. <laughs> That's awesome, man. And so, I mean, that is an awesome that is an awesome side note there. I had no idea. I'm learning something every time. Every time I do this show, I'm learning something awesome, and that's that's what I'm going to say about this one. But man, so you you've gotten to you know not only inspire but probably tour with a lot of your heroes as well with Witch Mountain and and uh, I mean, were you? I I want to talk about the Danzig tour because yeah, were you a Danzig fan beforehand? 
Oh, big time. I mean, I obviously listened to Misfits and Sam Hain in high school. Sure. And then when he started his solo stuff, I think it was really around Lucif. Well, no, I heard Twist of Cain. And then Lucifuge, when that tape came out, uh, I got into that. And then when Danzig 3, How the Gods Kill, came out, I saw that tour in Portland at the Fox Theater in 92. It was Danzig, and the opening bands were White Zombie and Caius. Oh, wow. And and that was a killer show. Although, I have to say, Danzig's band at that time just cleaned the stage. Like, Caius and White Zombie didn't stand a chance with the band that Danzig had at that time. They were so fucking great. Um, and Chuck Biscuits from the Circle Jerks yep. was drumming with him at that time. And they had these giant gargoyles on pillars with crisscross and laser beam eyes. And I was super into that. Um, so it was really cool to get that get that call from Danzig's people saying, hey, you know, he's asking for you, for Witch Mountain on the Blackest of the Black Tour. Because A, I'd been a longtime fan. B, it was a big goal of ours because we really thought, you know, if there's a popular band out there, you know, short of Black Sabbath or Metallica or something like that, that, you know, whose fan base we might really appeal to, it's Danzig. And so it had been a goal and then it was really cool to achieve it. And then the, the one other kind of funny side note is the only famous person I share a birthday with is Glenn Danzig. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have a chat about that? It's, it's, you know, we, we give each other, we say happy birthday to each other through his assistant once a year. Uh -huh. But honestly, we were on tour together for a month and we spent probably about two or three minutes together. Well, that sounds about right. Yep. That sounds about right. I tried but, to get him on the show, and it was a quick, oh, I'll check, and then it came back, yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah. He's he's in his own Danzig universe, and I totally respect that. And yeah. all I can say is he treated us very well. It was a great experience, and I'll be thankful forever. So it was it was great. God. Chuck Biscuits. The first time I saw Social Distortion in Alaska was with Chuck Biscuits. That was oh, crazy. Man. I bet. Oh my God! I, I wish he was still playing. It really breaks my heart because he's he's one of my true drum heroes, and seems like he's just like living a normal life now. Yeah, didn't he have a death hoax not too long ago? Yeah, there was a death hoax, but but I think what's not a hoax is he just works at like some, I don't I don't know, like a department store or something. Oh, I can't God. remember what it was, but he's just like <laughs> team leader for Target or something. <laughs> go really go real straight. And I was like, man. <laughs> Because like, I watched him, like, breaking cymbals and, you know, drinking pitchers of water and letting him just, I don't know, he's just, he was a caveman when yeah. I saw him. It was awesome. An absolute wild man. That was, yeah, that was one of my first shows I went to was that show. And it all of a sudden, it just starts out with him on drums. And mm -hmm. I was just blown away. Like, you just feel it in your chest. So were you were you always a drummer? Or were you doing yeah, other things? I, when I was 10, well, okay, so... Started with the triangle in kindergarten. Okay, perfect. <laughs> uh, fourth grade music class. I really badly wanted to play the clarinet, but I had allergies and I couldn't breathe through my nose right for a wind instrument at that time because I didn't know I was lactose intolerant. And I was, uh -huh. you know, you're in public school; they give they're giving you cartons of milk to chug constantly. Oh yeah. So so I was like congested for years until I figured that out. So they put me on the drums in the back and I, you know, learned how to do basic rudiments and drum rolls. And I mean, for how long I played drums, I'm definitely not a virtuoso by any means. Um, but I'm glad that I had that 
you know, that basic training. And then I, I just had really shitty music teachers for a number of years after that and try, kept trying to play music, but being really discouraged by these awful music teachers. And then finally, when I was 16, my friends started a band and they needed a drummer. And so I, my parents helped me get a drum set. I got a clear blue fiberglass Vista light, kind of like what John Bonham used oh, to use. Oh, yeah. And uh, we started this band and we called it DSL, which was LSD backwards. It stood for Devil, Satan, Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's, yeah. It reminds me of that. What's that? Fangs, angle, Fangs, Fangs, anal Satan uh, deal that Boris has going on. That I don't know if that's their label or like everything. Everything they put out has that on it. I think it's like a weird, loose translation of something else where it's like a very literal deal. But it reminds me of yeah, just the three like dark things. Or oh, that's yep. awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I- I have to take credit for that one. That band name was my idea. That is fantastic. <laughs> that was, uh, <laughs> well, I also heard, I don't know if this is true. Well, maybe, I forget who told me. I don't know if it was Mike Wolfson or, or Mac, but they said something about that you had done some stuff with Sun on the, is that true? Yeah. Uh, so I knew some of those guys. Greg Anderson also played in a band called Goat Snake. Yes. And uh, Witch Mountain and Goat Snake played some shows together in 99 in Portland and Seattle. And so that connection was already there. And at the time, Sun was like, was like their side project. It was very much, you know, like Steve and Greg would get together and drone and make, make a CDR or whatever. And it, there wasn't a lot of momentum behind Sun at that time, but they decided to come record the white one album, which I think is their fourth record. They, they, they'd taken a break for a couple of years and hadn't done much, but they, they decided to come to Portland to record White One with uh, this guy named Rex Ritter. And I think I just went over to hang out with them. Like we went and I think we went to La Cruda. We, you know, had some tacos and a beer. Uh-huh. And then I ended up at their recording and loaned them one of my Moog keyboards. And then they invited me to do some live shows with them. And so... I borrowed a timpani from Sun. Because I kept saying, like, wow, you know, Sun needs timpani. And they were like, well, can you get one? And I was like, yeah, let me see what I can do. And so we did a, we did a couple shows at Dunes and at Verbotti's. And, uh, you know, some of this was before there were the robes were even really happening. Like the first show at the Blackbird, I set up for Sun. They just set up a wall of amps and played behind it. Okay. And uh, anyway, so... Long story short, I did five live shows with them, and I played timpani on an album called White Two. And um, then we just kind of went our separate ways, and we're all still friends. But uh, you know, I'm I'm really thrilled at how much success they've had with it. I'm excited to see them at Psycho Las Vegas this year because I haven't seen the band for a few years now. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, they just they were always inviting friends to collaborate with them, and I just happened to be there at that time, and it was it was fun. That's rad. And then you're yeah. also going to see Danzig do How the Gods Kill. Yeah, and that's and that's the tour that I saw when I was 18. <laughs> so yeah. it's pretty cool. You know, everything's we're all in time is folding in on itself right now constantly i was gonna say your autobiography could be called full circle dude just everything just keeps (laughs) going like like ripples in the water you throw a rock in the water and just keeps going it's man that's rad so you're gonna fly to vegas and see that see that show that's awesome 
Oh, yeah, I won't miss Psycho Las Vegas. I mean, it's just the best U.S. <laughs> festival I've been to. Like, we played the first year, and uh, I had, I think, eight of my clients played last year. So that was a lot of – it wasn't really – I was working for sure. Yeah. Uh, this this year, I only have two bands on it, so I get to enjoy myself a little bit more and just hang out. But either way, it's a really good time. Sure. Well, man, let's let's talk a little bit about this new record, like recording this new record mm-hmm. and, and this, this record coming out. I mean – you guys haven't done something in a while and, and you've got a new singer and I mean, she's fantastic. Monica sent me the, um, the Hollicks for the record, yep. which I've been listening to the last few days. And, and, uh, it's just a great piece of music, man. Like there's, Thank you there's very much. so much to it. It's awesome. And then there's, I mean, the, the, everything from the, the, it's just crushing for one, like the, it's just massive, but then there's also these just really crazy, like swirling kind of harmonies and acoustic guitar and then like just heavy riffs. I mean, it's just a, it's like a whole smorgasbord of, of greatness. (laughs) It's just great. Like it's, it's very, I mean, it's never boring. It's just constantly moving and growing and breathing. It's, it's awesome. Like it's not like a, I get a lot of records sent to me, especially with the show, like that is just literally like, all the drums are triggered like everything is just right here this goes in this place and blah 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 and it's just this massive assault on your senses but this like actually feels like it breathes with you a little bit like it's it's organic and that's what i love about witch mountain but at the same time this record specifically is just fantastic i can't i can't say it enough like i was so happy when she sent it to me because i was like i had no idea there was something new and uh anyway so enough ass kissing but um, what, what, uh, inspired this record and, and kind of going through the process of, of putting this out? Well, so the last record we'd done was in 2014 and, uh, our singer and our bass player left right after that. Mm-hmm. And we, Rob and I thought that we might have to take a couple of years off, but in a really short time, new people, basically found us and you know kayla sent us a video demo audition that just blew us away i mean people were already kind of beating the door down to try to get that vocalist spot Uh but we we were in no hurry we just thought you know like unless we can come back better there's no reason to do anything but kayla blew us away and so we just thought man like i guess i guess we don't have to stop and immediately after she joined the band and Justin came in on bass, Yab invited us to go out on tour and we went and did that. And then Danzig invited us on tour and then we toured with St. Vitus and the skull. So rather than rushing a record out, we just tried to build the band into a new family unit. And so by the time we went in to make this record, we'd done like 80 shows together and we'd lived in a van together for months at a time and, and that was, you know, that wasn't an accident. Like as the band's manager, that's what I wanted. I was like, the only way this is going to work is for us to really become a unit. And so by the time we started writing music together, you know, it wasn't very hard. I don't, I don't want to say we didn't work hard on it, but it wasn't, we, we weren't having to really go back to the drawing board and figure anything out. It was like, Rob's been writing music for the band for 20 years and he's got music coming out of his fingers And Kayla is so talented and has so many ideas. And this is the fourth record that Witch Mountain's done with the same producer, Billy Anderson, who's, you know, did the the Sleep Records and did 
engineered California for Mr. Bungle, and he did stuff for the Melvins and the Rosas, and you know, and he's constantly putting out new stuff by amazing bands. So, you know, it, it's so funny because it seems like we should have had to really think harder about it. But like you said, it was organic. We were just like, here's the music that we're making. Here's what we think will sound good. Here's, you know, the label that we like. And I don't know. I'm, I'm just really happy with how it turned out. I mean, I'm sure to some people, 35 minutes is maybe not enough music, but to me, like that's exactly what fits on high quality on an LP. So that's what we've always kind of looked back to the bands from the sixties and seventies at what they did. And, you know, that's, it wasn't, they weren't making hour long records. And this was, uh, I don't know. I'm really proud of the music that's on it. And, and I agree with you. I mean, I hear new albums all the time too, and they are compressed and they use triggers or it's just like this groaning sludge for 40 minutes. And we were really interested in dynamics and melodies and vocal harmonies and all this stuff. And, it's not like we had to hire a choir to do it. I mean, Kayla's a choir under herself and Rob can lay down as many guitar tracks as he wants. And we recorded my custom maple kit in this former library. That's now a studio called hallowed halls. And, you know, Justin's got this massive bass tone and, and because we've done, done so many shows together, I think we just know how to play together. And, uh, I, I'm super excited about it, but I, I'm even right now positive that the next thing we do is going to be even better. Dude, that's fantastic. That's, I mean, and yeah, just an organic big record. Like, it sounds like a record from, from back then. And, and have you heard the new Sword record? I haven't heard the new one yet. No. Oh, fuck, dude. You got to check it out. It's rad, but sure. it's it's also very organic and very, I mean, it's very 70s. But it's, right. uh, I yeah, you guys are just doing something right, man. It's, it's. And, the, and catching up with you and and hearing your story and also you know hearing how you feel about music and and everything it all just kind of ties together in this you know this piece of music I mean it's it's it all shows through and the fact that you're I mean you can lay your head on the pillow every night knowing you did everything with integrity and how you wanted to do it I mean it's something that people dream about being able to do you know or people think they're doing it but they're really just you know everything's just on a grid and and it's just garbage i mean it's it's a trade-off because we could have signed to a bigger label you know 15 years ago and we would be a maybe a bigger and better known band but we we never wanted to have to compromise along the way and um i don't know it's it's nice being 20 years in and owning our entire back catalog and not not having sold our our art to somebody else along the way so there's there's definitely a part of me that feels like, man, you know, we should be better known than we are or more people should come to these shows. But at the same time, it's just been this slow process of doing things our own way. And eventually, you know, more and more people catch on. And so, you know, I really appreciate getting to be on this podcast and, you know, hopefully somebody out there gets turned on that hasn't really checked it out before. And I, you know, there's no better time to hear us for the first time than now because I think it's the best record we've done, and I think our live show is better than it's ever been. So it's not like you missed the peak. The peak is ahead. <laughs> Absolutely, and you're still together playing shows, and then the homework starts. Then they start working their way backwards through the back catalog. Yep. they got so much to check out. 
it's going to be just a discovery all the way and and that's the other cool thing about it is you can they can come see you now and then work their way backwards and and uh really really become engaged with what yep. Witch Mountain has done and and who they've inspired and I mean you guys have inspired so many people you know and been on the forefront for so long it's it's just crazy to think about i mean if you really sat down and made a web of you know people just you've heard about that you've inspired and what they've inspired and then it's just this crazy ripple effect i mean it's insane and to think about the net you have just from the booking agency and and then the touring i mean you just have so many people who are interested in what you're doing and and appreciate what you're doing i mean you're in a really good spot and I'm going to go buy that book today because I'm going to get that on Amazon and get it sent here because I am really stoked to to read this. And uh, well, thanks. I'll I'll definitely hit you up and let you know what I thought too. And and uh, um, man, Nate, I really appreciate you coming on the show, man, and and spending the time and and uh, putting it out there. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. All right, buddy. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nathan Carson from Witch Mountain, from Nanoterra Booking, and from everywhere this man is all over the place dj nate c here in portland and uh like we said on the show he's also an art author and uh is getting a lot of stories published so congrats to nathan and thank you to him for coming on be sure to check out rockabilia.com pc jabberjaw is the code for 15 percent off your order and we will be back next week and every week after that with more great content more great guests and more great stories And I appreciate you guys sticking with me, coming back week after week. Tell a friend, rate and subscribe, and as always, we'll see you on the radio. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.